We'll be in Acts chapter 20 today. Last week we closed with chapter 19 as Paul was in Ephesus. He was there with a group uh, of men he met years earlier. There were 12 of them that didn't exactly understand uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand things clearly. They understood John's baptism. They didn't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Paul met them and then filled them in and then started attending synagogue with them. But shortly after, the Jews didn't want any part of them, even though they were all Jews. He didn't want any part of them. So um, they left. And Paul started a school, a biblical school, in an actual building called the School of Tyrannus. And so they were meeting there for two years daily. This was a daily school. It's Bible college, except they didn't have the whole Bible. They had the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. They were writing the New Testament. They were living it. And so in that time, Paul met, he was raising up not only these 12 men, but anyone who came in and wanted to hear the word of God, wanted to learn the word of God, he would teach them and train them. And so I believe that many of these 12 men went on to take over that school after uh, Paul left because Paul was going to leave Ephesus and these guys took over. So while he was there, he was confronted with a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith. He made little uh, temples of Diana, which Ephesus, uh, uh, Ephesus was the, uh, the gatekeeper of this temple of Diana uh, or Artemis uh, in Ephesus. So um, they um, were very into idols. They had lots and lots of idols. And all of the craftsmen, all of the silversmiths, the coppersmiths, they all worked together to produce these little trinkets and sell them. And that's how they made their living. But people were getting saved. They were becoming Christians. They weren't following idols anymore. They burned all of their books on witchcraft and sorcery and all of that. They burned just a big, huge pile of, well, they weren't books like we know them, but they were books nevertheless, and they burned them all. And so it was of impacting the economy of the day in Ephesus. Those authors who produced those books, who wrote them, they are now out of business as far as the Christians go. They're not selling their books to Christians anymore. These idol worshipers that were selling these idols, they might not have even believed in Diana, but they were making money off of her. Hey folks, that still happens today. There are people in the church that are making money off the church rather than caring about the truth of the word of God. The, the, instead, they're on TV selling God 
instead of caring about people's souls. That's what a pastor is supposed to be, a shepherd of the hearts and souls, the lives of the people, not someone that's making money off of them. It's not about that. So Paul was a great example of this. He was a tent maker. He worked and um, built tents or anything that had to do with leather, material, stuff like that. He would make and then he would sell. And that's where he got his income from. He didn't take income from the churches that he went to. And so, you know, people, we have missionaries that go out and they um, go to these different places. Well, they get money from many different places to keep going there. And there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're doing the work of God and actually reaching people and serving the Lord. But um, today, now it's more about business. It's running churches of business. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. I am a tent maker in that I still work a full-time job besides being a pastor. And that's important for me in that God has called me not to be a full-time pastor and taking money from the church, but instead taking the money that comes in and giving it back to the church. And that's why we have a nice building and, and everything else because all the money goes right back into the church and the ministry. It goes back into helping people in other places. We um, support a church in Crete and the island of Crete. And, and so um, that's kind of cool, right? Uh, the people that are there, we know them really well. We've known them since 2004, and they went there about the same time we came here and planted this church, and they're there ministering in, in Greece. So uh, that's how things, I believe, are supposed to be. So Paul then um, was in Ephesus. They wanted to take him and drag him into this argument, this fight, but he kind of was off to the side. The, his friends told him, don't go near there. Don't go near the amphitheater because they filled the amphitheater. 25,000 people, they're all in there shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they were all ready for a fight. And they said, no, Paul, don't do this, you know. And the city clerk went in and he calmed the crowd down and everything. But that may have calmed that crowd down, that riot for that moment, but it didn't calm what was inside of them. They still wanted to find Paul. They still wanted to raise trouble. And uh, Paul uh, just needed to get out of there. So today's message is titled, The Mission Continues. And we begin in chapter 20 in verse 1 where we read, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. And so Paul was looking to get to Jerusalem um, before the day of Pentecost. He, that's, it was in his mind. That's what he wanted to do to get there. And then he wanted to go to Rome. And he wanted to go minister in Rome. And so this was his plan. This is what he wanted to do. In uh, chapter uh, 19, in verse 21, uh, we're told that when these things were accomplished, all the things that he was doing in uh, Ephesus, Paul purposed in the spirit that uh, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, 
saying, I have been there, I must, uh, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So that's what he had in his heart. That's what he wanted to do. Eventually, he would make it to Jerusalem. Eventually, he would make it to Rome, just not in the way he thought he was going to go. You know, and sometimes that happens to our lives where we make plans of what we're going to do. Oh, sure, on the way to Rome, you know, he was in chains on a ship and then the, he was shipwrecked and all kinds of bad things happened on that trip. That wasn't what he signed up for, but that's what God had planned for him. And so... Uh, he just went along with whatever God's plan was. You know, he had it pretty rough everywhere he went. And so this was just another uh, moment that he was going to. So after two years in Ephesus, after planting the church in the school of Tyrannus, finally now he's leaving. And in verse 2 we read, Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So here he was planning his trip once again, and he got to Corinth, he got to Greece. Corinth is in Greece. So Macedonia, he was in all of the places that he had gone before as he was heading from Ephesus. So uh, he probably went through Thessalonica, uh, through Philippi, through Berea, um, and then down through Athens into Corinth and stayed there for about three months. And then when he was ready to go to Syria and take a ship to Syria, he found out there was a plot to get him. So he said, you know what, maybe this isn't the way I should go. If they think I'm going that way, I'll go the other way. And he went back up into Macedonia uh, to go a different route so he can get there. Paul expected this persecution. We don't have persecution here, Christian persecution in Fountain Hills. If someone calls you a name in the name of Jesus, if someone calls you, you know, oh, you lousy Christian, you know, all these, you Christians all think that you have everything figured out. And you know what? We don't have persecution. That isn't persecution. You, you can go anywhere and get persecuted for anything. Oh, you like the Cardinals? What's wrong with you? You know, you, you can be persecuted just about anything, you know. And, and so some of us take it a little more personally than others. But what Paul was experiencing was Christian persecution. You know what? He was expecting it. How do I know? Because on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. A light came down. And he had a face-to-face -face with Jesus, although he didn't see a face. He just saw a light so bright it blinded him. And then he went into the city and waited there for a man named Ananias. He was waiting there, and then God spoke to Ananias and said, go. And I want you to go talk to Paul. And Paul said, uh, and Ananias said, I know that guy. And his name was Saul at that time. He was called Saul. He said, I know that guy. 
You know, he's been persecuting the Christians. He's been killing them, arresting them, as if, as if God didn't know, right? Do you think God was sitting in heaven going, oh, really? You know, no, God knew. So here, you know, God tells him, go, because I am going to show Paul, Saul, all the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. So Saul already knew what he was going to suffer for the name of the Lord. Uh, he was already prepared for this. And that's how come when he went into things, he trusted when the Lord said, you're going to go do this. He wasn't worried because if God said he's going to do something, God's going to make it happen. I'm sure when he was being pulled outside the city and stoned to death, he wasn't thinking, you know, wow, how am I going to get out of this? You know, he, you know, knew that God had everything under control. As a matter of fact, after everyone came out there, he looks like he's dead. He pops up and says, okay, well, let's go back into the city now. I'm hungry. You know, and it just doesn't make sense to us. But that's the kind of persecution that he experienced. None of us have experienced, unless you have, I don't know, but I'm sure most of us have not experienced that kind of persecution that he was experiencing. So, and by the way, this wasn't vengeance against Paul because remember, he was the persecutor of the church and this wasn't God getting back at him. But who would be a better person to send out to bring the gospel to people than the one that originally was persecuting them. He knew both sides of the story. He was raised in the Old Testament. He knew the first five books of the Bible word perfect. He could recite every book all the way through because that's what it took to be a Pharisee. And he qualified. He was a Pharisee. And so since he had that knowledge, that was something God wasn't saying, oh, I'm going to raise him up because he has that knowledge. And God was going to use whoever made himself available. God uses me. I didn't have any biblical knowledge when I became a Christian. I just knew that I was in need of something. I was empty. I needed something. And so that's how God reached me. And God reached Paul because um, he knew that he could use Paul too. And so he showed, he proved himself to Paul. This is who I am. And now Paul is living and working, doing what uh, he expected, what God expected him to do. God knew what he was going to do. So we're in verse 4. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also, Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. Bunch of great names if you have a child that you want to name, a grandchild. Bunch of great names there. Okay, and 
Here's something interesting, though, as we're reading these names. Berea, you remember the Bereans, so he probably passed through Berea on the way. And uh, then he was with Aristarchus and Secundus. Aristarchus is where we get the term aristocrat. He was at the top of the food chain. He was one of the leaders. He was one of the wealthy. He was an aristocrat. Secundus? Well, Secundus means he was a slave. You see, if you were the top slave in the house, you would be called Primus. Number one, the number one slave. You didn't have a name. You had a number. You were the prime slave. Secundus was the second slave. He wasn't even the prime slave. And here was Aristarchus, the wealthy, the aristocrat, with Secundus, the second of the slaves, together, serving together, and now going with Paul uh, together. It's just a neat picture of seeing what God is doing in the early church and how he's reaching people in places where, um, you know, you would never expect. You wouldn't expect to see these two men together. And these men going ahead waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. So who were all these guys besides uh, those two? They were guys from the various churches that Paul had planted along the way. As he was going to all these different places, remember, he, he uh, went on his second missionary journey. He went around and then came back up and went through Asia on his second missionary journey. Went back to Jerusalem and then went back up to Antioch. Then started from Antioch and went all the way around and started another trip going through revisiting all of the churches that he had been to previously. But he wrote about these, this group of guys in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where he wrote in chapter 16, verse 1 in 1 Corinthians, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, so that there be no collections when I come. He's telling them on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is Sunday. Okay, remember, it was six days, and on the seventh day, the Jews uh, would rest. That was the Sabbath day. That was a Saturday. This is the first day of the week that they're told. So there were people meeting on the first day of the week, obviously, because he's writing a letter to them saying, when you get together on the first day of the week, put some money aside. He said, because I don't want any collections 
when I come. He didn't want them to come. He didn't want to show up and say, okay, where's your money? You know, pull it out, empty out your pockets, grab the money out of the pocket and the guy next to you and put it in the basket. He didn't do that. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. So there was Paul saying, here I am. I'm coming through this area. I'm going to pass through all the churches. When I come through, I'm going to take your gift. I'm not going to take it personally. You're going to bring someone along so that they can bring the gift. I don't want everyone to give the money to me so then there's any controversy about where the money went. You know, you bring your people and we're going to deliver it to the church in Jerusalem. Why did they need to bring the money to the church in Jerusalem? You know, this didn't make a lot of sense. Well, if you knew what was going on in Jerusalem, it made perfect sense. See, in the early church, when the church was first formed in Jerusalem, uh, they all came together and everyone gave all of their money and wealth and they put it all together in one pool. And then the church provided for the needs of the people and, and the, the apostles were distributing that. Then they raised up, remember, seven faithful men. And then those men oversaw the distribution to those that were in need. Socialism at its earliest form was happening right there. But here's the thing. They weren't able to continue. This is the first multi-level marketing plan um, in, in our country. They they'd started Amway right there in Jerusalem. Here's the thing is that it couldn't succeed because they were ostracized from the church, from the Judean church. They were separate because they weren't accepted as believers in following the Jewish faith. They were seen as outcasts. Not only that, uh, they were not allowed to participate in trading and buying and selling and trading and doing business with the Jews. So in Jerusalem, that was a death sentence. They weren't able to survive that way. They didn't have enough to produce and survive as the church on their own. And so Paul came up with this plan. Hold on, we'll get the Gentiles to come together and provide the funds for the Jewish church. You see, the Jews were having a little problem with the Gentiles being involved anyway. Hold on, you know. They, they don't worship the Messiah. Oh, yes, they do. And over time, they came to realize that God is not only the God of the Jews, he's the God of the Gentiles. He's the God of anyone who will come and receive him as their savior. And so when they finally learned that, 
they were accepting to a certain point. But now it's the Gentile church that's going to provide funds to support the Jewish church. And that's going to heal a lot of those wounds. And Paul was the one that thought of this. But I'm sure it was driven by the Holy Spirit, by God, showing Paul, hey, let's do this. And Paul is now bringing these men back to Jerusalem with him as they're on their way uh, there. So um, he stayed in Troas seven days and gathered with the disciples, we read uh, in verse 7. And now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart, depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they had gathered together. And in the window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down, fell on him, and embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. And now when he had come up and had broken bread and eaten and talked for a long while, even till daybreak, he departed. And they brought up the young man uh, in alive, and they were not a little comforted. And so here's a great story. The moral of the story is if the pastor is preaching till midnight, don't sit in the third window. <laughs> you know, that's why we're on one level. We, we don't want to have anyone falling out of the windows. They were meeting on the first day of the week. That would be Sunday. And so we picture the early church meeting like we are today on a Sunday in the morning, getting together, breaking bread together, and having a time of fellowship. But it's not exactly the right timing, especially back in those churches. You see, there were still many Jews involved in the churches in those days, even though they were in Gentile lands. They were Jews. Remember, Paul would go to the synagogues and he would teach there first. And then there were Jews that would get saved and then follow him. And that's where many of these churches uh, were built on the foundation of the Jews and then Gentiles that came in beside. And so the Jews, they worshipped on Saturday, the Sabbath. And when did Saturday end? At sundown on Saturday. Sunday began at sundown on Saturday. That's when Sundays began. So when Paul was teaching on Sunday at midnight, that was actually what we would consider Saturday night. And he probably didn't get started until 8 p.m., 9 p.m. Because after the Sabbath was over, after the sunset, then the people would come together and then they 
would start to meet and he would start to preach. And so it wasn't that he was preaching all day up until midnight. He only started at nine. So I'm going to show you how long that is because I'm going to preach for three hours today. <laughs> and, and then I'll, and you can, you know, it's funny how our attention spans have changed. Uh, so he was there teaching until midnight. Here's the amazing thing. The people were listening. The people were hungry to hear the word of God, to hear the truth. Remember, they didn't have the New Testament. It was being lived. It was being written by these moments that they were there teaching. And so Eutychus was a young man hanging out at the window thinking, okay, I'm going to get some fresh air. We were told there were many candles in there. So you can imagine the candles all burning and then, you know, burning up the oxygen and there wasn't a lot of breeze in there. And then, you know, so some of the people were probably falling asleep, much like what happens here. And, and so people fall asleep in service sometimes. You know what? I would rather you be here and fall asleep in service for a little bit because the whole service is like a, a meal. You may miss the entree, but if, if you get the appetizer and dessert, hey, you're doing okay. You're getting something out of the meal, okay? You're getting part of what is, but it, this is the part where we get to come together, encourage each other, fellowship with each other. We get to see the work of God through this service. So I'm, I'm not offended because I don't know, you know, how people have spent their night. Maybe they're tired, you know. But if they're here, they made an effort to come hear the Word of God. So thank you uh, for coming and, and spending time with us here today. So Eutychus falls out the window, hits the ground. Paul goes out there, and he gives him a hug. He feels him. Maybe he felt a faint heartbeat. Don't know. Maybe he was really just unconscious. He wasn't taken up dead, dead. But, um, you know, they knew what dead was in those days. The dead was the same then as it is now. And, and so, uh, you know, he picked him up and, and he prayed for him. And, um, you know, Eutychus came back uh, to life. So that's a good thing that it happens. We're told that the disciples then came together. They broke bread. This was not a one-time incident, by the way. They broke bread on a regular basis. Uh, they called it communion, but it, it was really a, um, a time where the church would come together and they would pool all of their potluck food together and everybody would get a little bit of uh, some of that food. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul calls out the church because some of the people were coming together and eating before the other people because they weren't rich. They were serving the other part of the church. They're all the church. Everyone comes together. They're, you know, God doesn't have front seats, you know, when you get to heaven, that's, I know some of us think that. Billy Graham's going to be sitting there in the front row, you know, because, you know, he's worked the hardest. He has the, the most salvation. And it's not like that. 
It's a level playing field. The first will be last and the last will be first. That's what we learn through the word of God. Jesus said that. So I believe him. And, and so, you know, we shouldn't really get hung up when we come together, everybody's on a level playing field before God. We shouldn't get hung up on, you know, who this person is, who that person is. Sometimes in, in some of the richer churches, there, there are some churches in Scottsdale that have some very popular, very famous people attending those churches. Football players, basketball players, so on and so forth that attend those churches. And people get really enamored about the fact that, oh, so-and-so attends this church. And, um, you know, hopefully they're saved attending that church. Because it doesn't matter which church you attend or who. It matters what your life is like with God. What your relationship is with Jesus. Without that, it doesn't matter who's sitting next to you. As a matter of fact, I want people to come into church not thinking higher of themselves, but thinking less and saying, you know what? We all need Jesus. And so every person in the place needs Jesus. And so if I come into a place where there are people that are hurting financially, physically, emotionally, you know, praise the Lord, they're in the right place. The world is messed up right now. Man, you watch the news and it's like, who are these people? What planet did they beam down from? Because they're out of their mind, some of them. And I watch and think, really, is this where we're at as a society? Yeah, we are. We're at the point where Right is wrong. Good is evil. It, it, but the Bible said that. That that's what we should expect. And so we're seeing it before our very eyes. Let's not get freaked out by it. Let's look at it as an opportunity to say, hey, you know what? The darker it gets, the brighter we shine. And let's shine some light around so that others can see. So I'm still impressed by the fact that they got together and they were there hearing the word of God till midnight. You know, and some of them may have fallen asleep. Falling asleep in church is not my concern. Falling asleep in the world is my concern. That's where... You need to be concerned. First Thessalonians 5, 6 says, Let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. How is your Christian walk? That's the most important thing. It's not whether or not you've fallen asleep in church. Is have you fallen asleep in the world? Uh, does the world see you as being asleep even though you're a Christian? See, people see me in my job. I, I, I don't go to work because the company's in San Diego. So it's just a long drive. <laughs> but I, 
I am constantly on Zoom calls and, and Teams meetings and I'm interacting with people from my company all the time. And when I do, I want to present myself as best. And you know what? Some of those meetings are boring, <laughs> uh, are really boring. And, and you know, I want to, I have to make sure I'm muted in case I start snoring. <laughs> I mean, it's that bad. But I understand it's a business meeting. We have to interact. We have to keep. And so I want to present myself as good because everyone knows that I'm a pastor. And so even the, the CFO, you know, she doesn't call me Rick. She calls me Pastor Rick, you know. She's the CEO's wife, and they are both strong believers. They're both brothers and sisters in Christ, and they call me Pastor Rick. And you know what? They both serve in their church. They have this multi-million dollar company that they run, but they still serve in their church, in the children's ministry, reaching out to those in need, and it's just sweet to see how God can use anyone that makes themselves available. And I think that all of us should be that way. So how are you in your Christian walk? Are you asleep when it comes to showing others the love of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ? That's when we have to be the most awake when we can demonstrate that kind of love to the world because the world doesn't have that kind of love. The world doesn't see that kind of love. And so when they do, they're drawn to it. That's how people are drawn by the Holy Spirit into a relationship with Jesus. Sleeping also has another adverse effect. It makes people vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. And when we sleep spiritually, the enemy attacks and it will impact our lives. It'll impact our witness and our testimony on those around us. Verse 13, and when they went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos, they're intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he had met us at Asos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. And we sailed from there and came to uh, the next day opposite Chios. The following day we arrived at Samos and stayed at Tregillium. The next day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so Paul was trying to make it to Jerusalem. He had an agenda and he wanted to get there. He then went past and he, he walked to Asos and to, to meet with the disciples. They were on board a ship. They were traveling and 
he was probably faster than the boat going over to Asos. And they were probably had all of the stuff with them that they were bringing at that time, going back to Jerusalem, all the camping stuff that needed, everything they needed, they had with them. Paul was on his own. This was probably... 20-mile trip where Paul can just spend time with the Lord while he was walking. He, sometimes pastors need that. They need just time away to refresh. Yesterday, Cheryl and I had a wonderful time. We went up to see, you know, the, the amazing creation of God. We went up to Payson and, um, and we went out to the Mugion Rim. And if you haven't been up there, it's amazing. It's just this big gash that runs the, the length, the width of Arizona. And it's just um, beautiful up there. And so we went up there um, just wanting to see the trees turning color and everything. Uh, there were five of them. Um, They're <laughs> they all pine trees up there. They don't turn color. And so we're up there saying, we're all the color, you know. Oh, no, you got to go to Prescott for that. You got to go to Oak Creek Canyon, Sedona. Uh, you know, okay, so uh, that's, that's our next trip, I guess. So, you know, we um, recognize uh, that there's time where you need to just get away. And Paul probably took that 20-mile trip just to get away and, and to refresh, hear from the Lord get prepped for what was going to be coming next. Paul was always ready for whatever God wanted to do because he set time aside to get ready for whatever uh, God wanted to do. He had a little over 30 days to make it to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so he passed Ephesus and that's where all the churches were there. and Ephesus was a, a city of 300,000. There, there were more than just one church there. There were lots of them. And so he sent um, for the elders, the leaders, the presbytery that are up there in Ephesus. He, he called them down to him in Miletus. It, it was 30 miles away. If he went up, he knew he would be stuck there for a week or two and he knew he only had 30 days to make it to Jerusalem so he figured okay I'm going to get the leaders those guys to come to me so that we can have a pastor's conference that's what we're going to be studying next time we get together the pastor's conference uh, that they had together but here as he meets with them he is now going to feed the pastors, the pastor feeding the pastors. And it's going to be neat. It's going to be a good study. We'll be doing that in two weeks. So we close today considering how the mission continues for Paul. He wasn't looking to start a fight with anyone. You know, a lot of people think that that's what he was doing. He was going in and stirring things up and trying. No, he was just going there to bring the word of God. He was going there to share with them the hope that he has in Jesus Christ. The hope he has for eternity. And today, that's still the only hope we have as believers. Not the hope in this world. How many times have we tried to fix things? How many different humans have tried to fix things? Everything's all better, right? 
There isn't a solution, a human solution to our condition on earth. There's only a spiritual solution. And that's by being obedient, listening to the voice of God and applying his teaching to our lives. And that's how we are effective in reaching the world and changing the world. Can the world be changed? Absolutely, I believe it. But the world doesn't want to be changed. And we can see that just by watching the news. The world wants a human solution to a spiritual problem. And there isn't a human solution that's going to solve the problems going on in the world today. Amen? You know? So, the good news is, we aren't obliged to keep Jewish law. That's the good news. There are a lot of Christians that try to do that, that try to observe, you know, the Sabbath. We don't have to observe the Sabbath. Uh, Sabbath. Every day is the Sabbath for a Christian. Every day that God gives us is holy. Every day that we have a relationship with Jesus, which is every day, uh, that's our holy day, our holiday. And regardless of what's going on in our lives, he wants to be part of every part, every day of our lives. And so that's what's going to make the difference and how we impact the world around us. The good news is we can rejoice today. Regardless of what's going on around us. Just like Paul was rejoicing in the struggles and trials that he was going through. We read his writings and it showed us how much he was rejoicing even through the trials. His letters, his prison epistles he wrote while he was in prison showed how much joy he had being locked up in a prison. And he still had joy because his hope wasn't in this world. His hope was in the world to come. And that should be where our hope is. We, we shouldn't put any emphasis or trust in the things that are going on in the world because it's going to change. Sometimes we think, oh, it changes every four years when we have a new president or eight years or whatever. No. Nope. It, it, it's the same. It's still messed up humans trying to fix messed up humans. And, uh, and, and it's not going to change until the Lord returns. So take that good news. Tell someone about it. And when they hear the good news and believe it, it'll change their lives. It will set them free. Amen.